0: Good morning, church. On this brisk day, and if you're watching online, good morning. Uh, By the way, if you're on the live stream, we took a poll here in the room, and we unanimously decided that you have to run outside for a 10 count before you come back in so you could experience the commute that we experienced, that jolt awake, right? If you stepped outside, negative 25 is better than coffee for waking you up, right? Um, but I've developed a coping mechanism that's maybe not healthy. If I looked at the wind, 25 below, and I thought, oh, at least there's not much wind today. It's not that bad, right? It can always be colder. But I, I hope we're awake and ready to dive in this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, in our first year of marriage, uh, my wife and I lived in Chicago, and she decided, you know, as we entered that next season of life, time to start checking things off the bucket list. So she decided to run a marathon. And uh, I could have, as a good husband in our first year of marriage, said, this will be really bonding, I'm going to run with you, I'll train really hard with you, but I'm more sane than that, right? So I did what any rational person would do, and I said, I'll bring you snacks, I'll bring you water, I will cheer from a distance, but I am not going to run a marathon with you, right? Uh, Because I'm such a great husband, apparently. So she decides to run this marathon, she's training for it, and she trained with, with two of our good friends who lived in Chicago. Now, if, I, I've never run a marathon, obviously, uh, but she has. And so she's familiar with a, a level of adversity that emerges in the training process. When you run 14, 15, I think the longest training run was something like 20 miles, right? You, you get cramps in your leg. There's moments where you, you, you have a blister maybe start to form. There's a level of adversity. And part of what training is really good for is that it teaches you to push through, to rise into that moment. And so, as Lauren trained with uh, two of our other friends, as the training runs got longer and longer, interesting patterns of training began to emerge. Uh, now, my wife, she's uh, stubborn enough. Perseverant enough, we use that word, that she's going to pick a pace and that's her pace, right? She, I mean, she's, she's going to grit it out. That's just who she is. Our, our other friend, um, about a half, two thirds of the way through the training run, she would actually kick up the pace, right? And she'd say, hey, I'm, I'm going to run ahead. And she would actually pick it up. She was going to push in. Now, our, our other friend, um, we'll call him Chuck because that was his name, uh, <laughs> he would... About half, two-thirds into the run, he would say, like, guys, I'm just not feeling it. Like, I just, I don't have it today. And, and nearly every long training run, he ducked out early, right? He just wasn't. Now, here was the interesting thing. How you train determines how you run the race, right? So we get to race day, and my wife, she picks a pace, and for 26.2 miles, she stuck to that pace. Our other friend, about half, two-thirds of the way through, she picked up the pace. Our other friend, he got to mile 17, and he's like, nope, I'm done. So he cut off part of the race, and the joke was he ran the world's shortest, not quickest, shortest marathon at 20 miles, right? Cut off the last 6.2 because he just, he couldn't push in that last extra 6.2 miles because of the adversity and the pressure of training. He just couldn't push in. John, John Maxwell had this to say about trial, trials and pressures and perseverance. He says, the trials and pressures of life and how we face them define us. I thought that was interesting. The trials and pressures of life and how we face them define us. And and it goes back to that statement I I made earlier. How you train determines how you run the race. So when you hit adversity, are you the kind of person that perseveres, that pushes in, who recognizes the truth of what scripture says in James, that perseverance builds character and character hope? John Maxwell goes on to say this. He says, confronted by adversity, many people give up while others rise up. I thought that was fascinating. Many people give up while others rise up. And, and I want to pose this question today, and I want you to wrestle with, with this. What kind of person are you? Are you a give up or rise up kind of person? Here's why I say that. And, and I know that this is a statement and a phrase we've heard numerous times over the last year, but can we just admit that 2020 was a weird year, Right? In a lot of ways, it was a really difficult year with the, the pandemic stuff, and it was a year of uh, racial and political and economic division that we talked about last time. It's been a hard season, and, and, and I think it's been a hard season to be the church. And when I say be the church, I don't mean the organization, I mean us as a community. It's been a hard season to live out an authentic gospel life in, in the times and uh, culture that we live in. And so I want us to wrestle with that question because church, in the front of our minds, I want to ask us, as the church, are we a a give up or rise up kind of people? Because what I want to suggest to you is that in the season that we're in, you've heard Pastor Steve say that we're in the midst of a movement that God is doing. And and I think the difficult season that we've passed through, the difficulties that lie in front of us, whatever they might be, we have an opportunity as the church to either rise up or give up. And how we respond is of the utmost importance because I think God is working and moving and God is up to something. And this is a vital moment for the church not to give up, but for the church to rise up and push in and press on. And I want us to wrestle with that question this morning. Because as, as the story of Ephesians unfolds, let me, let me just recap this for us. In Ephesians chapter one, right, Paul is, is, is thankful for the work that God is doing in the church at Ephesus. In, in Ephesians chapter two, he reminds them, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God has made you alive. The last half of Ephesians chapter 2, you'll remember that Paul talks about the, the reconciliation that God is bringing between Jew and Gentile, that he's building a new temple built not in a physical location, but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with the redemptive work of Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That's this new redemptive, reconciliatory work that God is doing. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul continues this train of thought, and he'll push into this moment where he wants to remind us and help us understand the purpose and intention of the church. Why do we do what we do? (laughs) Why do we wake up when it's 25 below and log on to the live stream or drive to church to gather? Why, Why would we do that? And understanding that is of the fundamental importance to understand why we need to be a rise up and not a give up kind of people. And so with that, we look at Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse one. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord." In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. What I think is interesting about Ephesians chapter 3 is we have to keep in mind that Paul is handwriting a letter. I know we don't do a whole lot of handwriting of letters, but if you have, maybe you've had this experience where you're writing a letter and, and it's sort of the flow of thought, whatever's top of mind. And what I think is interesting is actually this first half of chapter three is, is a rabbit trail for, for Paul. You'll notice uh, in the text, it says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then there's a hyphen, right? The reason that hyphen is there is because in the original language, what follows this first half of chapter three is like two long rambling sentences as Paul just top of mind. And, and here's why. Because Paul was actually getting ready to pray a prayer. Verse 14 begins the same way that verse 1 does, because Paul loses his train of thought and comes back to it. Because what happens is Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. And he goes, oh, I need to explain the significance of being a prisoner. Because for the the church at Ephesus, as soon as they hear that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is a prisoner, they're going to have some questions. If Paul's message is trustworthy, why is he in prison? If Paul is this great leader that we think him to be, why risk the social stigma of being imprisoned for his faith? And so Paul dives into this explanation for helping them understand the significance of what he's in prison for and why it matters. And you'll notice he ends this passage by saying, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. He says, those are actually for your glory. So what is the reason that Paul would be willing to suffer the shame and the disgrace of being put in prison for this message? What is it? I want to draw your attention to chapter 3, verse 10, and then we'll kind of work backwards from there. Paul says this, his intent, that's God, God's intention was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And right there, that's the big idea of this first half of Ephesians chapter 3, is that Paul wants us to understand that God has a purpose and a plan and an intention for the church. And God's purpose and plan is that through the church, and when I say church, I don't mean the 501c3 organization, right? I'm not talking about the church as a building. I am talking about the gathered community of redeemed, reconciled people. Look to your left and right. That's the church that Paul is talking about. He uses a Greek word, ekklesia, that means the called out ones, the called together ones. God's purpose, his intention is that now in this season of history, his his purpose is that through the church, the body of believers, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. In other words, God has chosen the church to be the bearers of the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is to bear witness to what God is doing in the world. The beautiful reality of what Paul says in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's heavy. You, You were dead. When you were dead, you cannot make yourself alive again. When you are dead, there is no hope. But Paul continues. He says, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins, but Christ, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. And Paul says now, God's purpose is that now, at this time, at this place in history, the church is the instrument and the means through which God will make the beautiful riches of his wisdom of the gospel made known. Church, that's why I ask that question. Are we a give up or rise up kind of people? Because this is a moment, this is an opportunity for the church to be a rise up kind of people and to step faithfully into our call and recognize that it's through the body of believers, through this reconciled and redeemed community, that God wants to make the wisdom of the gospel known. I think it's interesting. Paul uses this phrase, the manifold wisdom, we don't use that word ever, manifold. It's this idea that the wisdom of God is rich and it's beautiful and it's, it's deep. And it's this idea that, that God has chosen the church to make the brilliance and the beauty of his redemptive plan known. Church, what an awesome, beautiful... And maybe terrifying responsibility that God wants to use ordinary people like you and I to gather us as a ragtag community and say, through this people who were broken but have been redeemed, I'm going to make the riches of gospel wisdom known to the world. And this purpose is huge. God's purpose and plan, this is all over Ephesians, God's purpose and plan is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of creation should be reconciled back to God under the authority and the lordship and the headship of Jesus Christ, right? That's why, that's why what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter two was so important, that in Christ, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down and Jew and Gentile are reconciled back together because church, listen to this, that we become a picture of what God is doing on a large scale in all of creation. Let me read Ephesians chapter one, verse nine and 10 for you. Ephesians 1, nine says this, God made known to us the mystery of his will, I love this idea that God has shown us the mystery. What is his will? What is he doing? God has shown us. It says, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. In other words, God is bringing his purpose to pass in Jesus Christ. Verse 10, it says this, to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment. Here's God's will. To bring all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The purpose of what God is doing is bringing all things, things in heaven and on earth. Everything is being brought to unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so fundamentally important that we live as a gospel people reconciled and redeemed by the blood of Christ because it is the reconciled, redeemed community of believers who bear witness to this larger picture of reconciliation that God is doing. It's through the church that God plans to make the wisdom and beauty of the gospel made known. So here's our call, church, to walk in the wisdom of God as messengers who proclaim the gospel and embody a life of redemptive reconciliation. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. Our call is to walk in the wisdom of God, that's the gospel, as messengers who proclaim the gospel and embody a life of reconciliation. That's what we're called to do. Elsewhere, scripture says we're we're called to forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave us. We are to live as a grace-filled, forgiving, reconciled, redeemed people because that becomes a model. We embody the truth of the gospel as we live that out. And the church becomes a picture of the reconciled, redeemed community that God is building in and through Christ. Now, the core of this call is what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel, isn't, isn't it weird? Did you find it interesting that Paul uses that word mystery? Now, when, when we use the word mystery, we often use the word mystery to refer to something that has no answer. The, the mysteries of the universe, we don't know. We can't explain it. So it remains a mystery. It remains hidden from us. Like for me, you know what one of the mysteries of the universe is for me? Why when I tell my children it's time for bed, they refuse Right? And then I raise my voice like, no, it's really time for bed, which now that I'm in grace-based parenting on Wednesday nights, that class, I'm realizing that's not the way to approach it, right? So I've got some things to learn, but I raise my voice, I tell them it's time for bed. I go downstairs and my two children that sleep in our basement are still awake. Or my oldest daughter upstairs, she's got a squeaky door and I'll hear this. Rrrr. I think, why God, it's a mystery of the universe that my children who are exhausted will not go to sleep when I ask them to. I can't explain it. It's a mystery, right? So we use this word mystery to refer to something that has no explanation. That's not how Paul uses the word here. The word mystery that Paul uses is this Greek word musterion. And it has this idea that it's unknown, but it's something that can only be discovered by revelation, right? So Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, the mystery of the gospel is this. It's an astonishing counterintuitive revelation. God brings it. It's something revealed by God because you would never discover it by a process of human reasoning. I love that. The beauty and the richness and the depth of the gospel is not something that we would ever come up with by a process of human reasoning. Now, in human reasoning, what makes sense to me is eye for an eye. The law makes sense to human reasoning. Give me a list of do's and don'ts, that seems pretty clear, but the mystery of the gospel is while you were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, Christ Jesus died for us. That is a truth so beautiful and so mysterious that we could never arrive at that truth unless God revealed it. And Paul says now, at this time in history, God has made known, is revealing the truth of his full redemptive plan and God has revealed it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, God's intention is that now, living on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church exists to bear witness to a Jesus Messiah, who lived and died and rose again to conquer sin and death and to reconcile us back to the Father, and that is the reason we exist. That is the reason on a morning where it is 25 below, we bundle, bundle up and we gather here as the body of Christ to be encouraged to step fully into the call to bear witness to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ that we who are sinners, who were dead in transgressions and sin, can be made alive and God sends us to go and relentlessly bear witness to that reality. Now, here's, here's the cultural challenge to that, right? Is the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to the world. And by the way, the the work of Jesus was one that the people of Israel wrestled with. Their idea of the Messiah was someone who would ride in on a war horse, lead a revolution, and overthrow Rome. At, At this time, the people of Israel were living under Roman occupation. They were eager and waiting for God to send a warrior who would lead a revolution. Right, but then Jesus throws all of that out the window. He rides in not on a war horse, but he rides in on a donkey. Listen, if you're gonna lead a revolution, don't ride in on a donkey. Write nothing about that says power and victory. It says humility. Right, and Jesus rides in on a donkey and Jesus doesn't have an audience with the emperor of Rome. He's crucified on a cross. And the counterintuitive beauty of what God does is that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he undermines the, the power of Rome. He undermines the power of sin because Jesus rises three days later demonstrating his victory over sin and death and brokenness and bringing about the redemption for those things. And that is the mystery that Paul points to that he has been called to proclaim. And that's our cultural challenge. Will we proclaim the wisdom of God a savior a Christ crucified that calls us out of sin and death into life? God's intent is that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. But here's the question, right? Do you ever wake up look at the culture that we live in, read the news. You see see the brokenness. You see the destructive social systems that we've created. We see a world that is just a mess. And if you're like me, sometimes I just feel overwhelmed by it. I go, God, what do we do in the middle of this? I don't know how to make an impact. Anybody else ever feel overwhelmed by that? What can I possibly do in one day? Like, I get this call that through the gospel of Jesus, he wants to redeem and reconcile all things, but what do I do right now today? It feels overwhelming. And I I was reminded of the story. I don't remember what what book it's from. It's not a true story, but uh, there's this story told of uh, an older man who was walking down the beach. And in the distance, he can see this little boy throwing something in the ocean. Bloop, bloop. He's, you know, what what is this kid doing? And he walks down the beach, and, and he gets to where this little kid is throwing things in the water, and he says, uh, what are you doing? And this little boy with the exuberance and, and, and the uh, just excitement that he brings to life says, oh, you, you see all these starfish? He says, when the tide comes in, it brings the starfish. But when the tide recedes, these starfish get left, and so I'm throwing them back. And the guy chuckles. He goes, son, look, I mean, there's like thousands upon thousands of, gold, uh, of starfish. You're, you're not going to do much of anything. And the little boy, not to be deterred, he picks up another one. He goes, bloop, I made a difference for that one. Bloop, I made a difference for that one. Bloop, I made a difference for that one. And, And this man walked away reflecting, saying, I was struck by the reality that what this child recognized is that in being faithful to make an impact one starfish at a time, he was making a difference. He couldn't do it all. He couldn't overturn the whole system, but he could make a difference in that one and that one, and that one. And here's what I want to suggest to you. God has not called us to single-handedly overturn all of the brokenness in creation. What God has called us to do is to be faithful right in the sphere of influence he's given you. So many times we overlook being faithful right here, right now, because we think we can't make a difference on the big scope of things. But the change on the big scope of things happens at the micro level in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in the friendships and relationships you have. You can't reconcile all things, but you can be reconciled to one person. You can model the grace and the redemptive love of Jesus Christ in the life of that one person. Church, we are called, I think, to start there in the simple, ordinary, everyday ways of living out the beauty and the truth of the gospel. But there's still that challenge, right? We know our own brokenness, we all know our own inabilities. And I think sometimes we ask that question, ah, I mean, can God really use somebody like me? But, but Paul makes this interesting statement. Did you notice verse eight? Paul says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. Now we could look at that and say, well, I mean, Paul's just being falsely humble, right? I mean, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. He founded much of the early church. I mean, Paul's just being humble. I'm, I'm less than the least of all, don't, you know. Paul's not being falsely humble. If you know Paul's story, he relentlessly persecuted the early church. In fact, in the early church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 6, there was sort of a a disagreement in the early church, and they they chose some leaders to be a part of, of remedying this situation. One of the leaders they chose was a man named Stephen. And Stephen is described as a man who is full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And because of the ministry that Stephen was a part of, even Jewish priests were being converted to Christianity. Now, the the Jewish ruling elders called the Sanhedrin, they weren't gonna stand for this because Stephen was a heretic. And so they call Stephen in and they start to grill him. Now, Stephen is a subtle man. And so he preaches a sermon back to the Jewish elders. And he says, you stiff-necked people, is there ever a prophet you haven't persecuted? Somebody should probably give him that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because, I mean, when you're in trouble, I don't know if that's where i go, right? But Stephen, he is a man of boldness and a man of wisdom. And so because of that, the Jewish elders, they are enraged. They grab Stephen, they bring him out, and they proceed to murder him. They start throwing stones at him. But here's the thing. It's hard to murder someone you've got a big tunic on, right? So the Sanhedrin, they take off their tunics, and they take them to a young man named Saul. And Saul's just this young guy. He's a Pharisee. He's well-trained. And Saul gladly holds the coats of the people who are murdering Stephen as a Christian. And Paul will later say, I stood there giving approval, watching them murder this man while I gladly held their coats, is the sense that you get later in Acts. In Acts chapter eight, that same man, Saul, proceeds to relentlessly persecute the church. It says he dragged off men and women, had them thrown in prison. He broke up families. Husbands and wives were thrown in prison because of their faith. That same man named Saul would later have a miraculous encounter with Jesus and have his name changed to Paul. Paul. When Paul says, I am less than the least of all God's people, he is not being falsely humble. He is saying, I am a man who is an accessory to murder, who gladly broke up families and threw them in prison because of their faith. Paul says, I have no right. I have no claim to the call that God has in my life, but by his grace. Listen, church, if God can use a murderer and a, uh, someone like Paul, who broke up families, who was merciless, God can use somebody like you and me. You are not too broken. You are not too far gone to be used of God to have a profound impact right in the sphere of influence he's blessed you with. And when we make the claim, I'm too broken, I'm too far gone, my past is too burdensome, when we make that claim, that is a a claim of doubting the sufficiency of God's grace and of his redemptive possibilities. Paul, in this passage, provides us an example of who he was and how he ministered. He'll describe himself as a manager of God's grace. In verse 2, he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me. That word administration means to steward or to manage. And Paul describes himself as someone who was called to steward the grace of God, to be faithful to this ministry call. Paul describes himself in verse 7 as a servant of the gospel. In verses 8 and 9, he says, I was called to proclaim and to preach and to make plain the gospel. And, and here's the thing, we could stop there and say, well, yeah, I mean, Paul, you had this amazing revelation, God changed your life. Great, that's good for you. The, the, the purpose of why Paul writes this part of the letter is what he wants the church at Ephesus to understand is that Paul is not special. He's not. Paul says, my life was changed and I was called to be a steward of God's grace, called to proclaim the gospel, uh, called to be faithful in this. And Paul says, and so are you, church. Paul will spend the rest of this letter, Ephesians, the last half of three, Ephesians four, five, and six saying, step into this call of faithfulness. And so what we see in Paul's identity and purpose is true of our identity and purpose. We are called to be stewards of God's grace. I'm going to read this quickly because we're going to be there in a couple of weeks. In Ephesians four, seven, it says this, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You have been given God's grace. If you are a believer, God has poured out his grace in your life. Verse 11, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, God has poured his grace in your life so that we can be a part of uh, equipping the body for works of gospel service and faithfulness. In other words, what we see Paul called to is no different than what we as the church are called to. Likewise, like Paul, we are called to be servants of the good news, servants of the gospel, Right? In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, y'all are God's handiwork, God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, when Paul talks about good works, he doesn't mean random acts of kindness. He means intentional acts of gospel proclamation. That's part of our calling. And likewise, just like Paul, we are called to proclaim and to preach and bear witness to the gospel. And I know everyone in the room is thinking, no, 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 you're behind the pulpit. That's your job. Mm Mm-mm the call of the church. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He's called apophets, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. We partner in this thing together to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Now, here, here's the reality. To live out that gospel call, the reality is that we might encounter suffering, right? Paul is in prison literally as he writes this letter. And I think in that, our temptation is to live a life in terms of our gospel call of passivity, of convenience, and comfort. And and if I'm honest, I I still wrestle with this idea of, I would rather just be passive in terms of the gospel. Like, I just want to go to work, and I just want to do my thing. I just want to have a comfortable family life. I don't want to think about some bigger divine calling. I just want to get through and retire with enough money to live someplace where it doesn't get 25 below. (laughs) Right? Right? But isn't, I mean, that's the American way, right? Live comfortably, live passive, live with convenience and comfort, make it through, just survive, and then your time is done. You just get to soak in the sun, right? But I think what Paul calls us to is a life, not of giving up, but a life of rising up and of pushing in because God's intention, God's purpose is that through the body of the church, the manifold wisdom, the beauty of the gospel should we, should be made known. So here's what I want to suggest to you. When we feel intimidated by the churches, by our call to serve, to make known the wisdom of God, because it is intimidating. When we feel that, I want us to remember remember some key things from this passage. Number one is this, that the call to serve uh, and minister on behalf of the gospel is a gift. Notice what Paul says in verse seven. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me. See church, we've got this backwards. We think our service is a gift to God our giving back to him, what we fail to recognize is that first a call to ministry and a call to service is God's gift to us. Because the God of all creation says, you are my masterpiece. You are my handiwork. I formed and fashioned you. You are so significant that you have a purpose to play in the kingdom of God that is vital and that is significant. And God has blessed you and called you and graced you to serve as a gift to your life. And what you find is that a life of passivity, comfort, and convenience leads to a shallow existence, but a life poured into the cause of Christ for the sake of the gospel allows you to discover what Paul says in verse 8 is the boundless riches of Christ. You want to know the fullness of life, experience the gift that God has called you to serve and pour your life out for the cause of the gospel. Secondly, I want us to remember this, that God graces you to serve. Right? When you go to the workplace on Monday and God is is, is, is putting on your heart and mind, bear witness to the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Right? He doesn't just send us and say, good luck. But in verse seven, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. That God will empower you to bear faithful witness to the call and the cause of Christ. And finally, notice that Paul says in verse 12, that we can come before God freely. In verse 12, Paul says this, he says, in him, Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, we can approach God with freedom and with confidence. I love that reality. And by the way, Paul is poking a little bit of fun here at Rome because Paul is under house arrest in Rome, the most powerful political authority in the world. And at the end of Acts, you'll find that the reason Paul's under house arrest in Rome is because as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. I demand to see Caesar and let him hear my case. But here's the thing, I love this. Paul's like, y'all, I might be in house arrest, but I can go freely and confidently before the God of all creation. I can enter his throne room anytime I want. And he is poking fun at the Roman emperor and recognizing I can go around him. I can go to the one who's in authority over the emperor freely and with confidence. Church, let that be mind-blowing that the God of all creation says, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, anytime you want, you can with freedom and confidence go before the God of all creation. So in those moments where we feel overwhelmed or burdened or intimidated at the call to go and make known the gospel, let us be a people of prayer who boldly and confidently go before the God of all creation and ask him to empower us for the time that we're in. I want to come back to that question that I asked at the beginning. Are we a give up or are we a rise up kind of people? I want to suggest to you, church, That it is fundamentally important that we be a rise up and push in and press on kind of people. Because God's intention is that right now, at this moment in history, through the church, the beauty and wisdom of the gospel should be made known. The brokenness and the cultural challenge we see around us is not a call to give up. It's a call to rise up. And I think what Paul calls us to recognize is the power that's offered to us that we can go before the God of creation anytime we want with freedom and confidence and pray that he would work powerfully in our situations. So how will you steward the sphere of influence that God has blessed you with? Whether that's classmates, whether that's your uh, neighborhood, whether that's coworkers, and will you live out that call to make the beauty and wisdom of the gospel known? So some application points for us. I want to ask that question again about reconciliation, right? That, that's an easy question to ask, a hard one to live out. Is there someone that you need to be reconciled with? And, and, and maybe uh, that picture of that person came into your mind. and You're like, I really don't want to have that conversation, but the spirit hasn't let it go. Be faithful to that. Also, I want us to reflect this week uh, on what is the aim of your life? Is it a life of passivity, comfort, and convenience, or is it this this gospel call to make known the truth of God's wisdom? How in simple ways then can you align your life with the call of the gospel? And finally, church, I want us to be a rise up kind of people who faithfully live out the call to bear witness to the gospel. This morning as we close, uh, the band is going to lead us in a song um, called Fresh Wind. And I want this to be a prayer for us this morning. One of the lines in the song says, uh, we need a fresh wind, the fragrance of heaven. Would you pour your spirit out? And the song draws largely on on, uh, Acts chapter 2. Let me just read this. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, all the believers were together and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filling the whole house They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues, bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. And what you find is there was a large crowd gathered that day of people all over the world. And they said, what is this miracle that each one of us, we don't speak Hebrew, we don't speak Greek, and yet we hear the gospel in our own language. And Peter says this, he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people all people. Are you all people? God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy, which is to proclaim and bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the end of Acts chapter two, it says, and the Lord added daily to their number, those who were being saved. Church, this is not a give up moment. This is a rise up moment and pray collectively. Lord, would you pour your spirit out let us be people who dream dreams and see kingdom visions and let us go forth in power and in boldness and see daily the lord adding to our number those who are being saved the time is too urgent to be a give up kind of people let us be a rise up kind of people would you stand and church let this song let it be a cry of your heart lord would you pour your spirit out at this time at this place in this season